Good morning, church. I've preached a few times here at Oakton, um, and this is by far the hardest sermon I've had to preach. Um, not just because I have to follow up the act of Jeremy, um, who I don't think there's any need for a sermon, really, after Jeremy shared with us. Um, but this is, it's no easy it's no easy thing to preach from God's word, and I think that's something to appreciate, um, that there's no room for apathy. Um, so let me pray. Dear Lord, I just praise you for who you are. Um, Lord, as we're going to look at this morning, we can sing words like, you're exalted over all, and that you love us. And we can say that with our mouths, but sometimes it's very hard to believe that in our hearts, considering all that we've experienced. Um, So Lord, just we we do believe that it's true, but help our unbelief. As we come to your word, let your spirit do the work. Let anything that's not from you be forgotten, unheard. Um, But Lord, I just ask that you'd speak to every heart by the power of your spirit through your word. Do a mighty work in our hearts. Humble our hearts before you now. Humble my heart. In your name I pray. Amen. We're doing um, a new series of uh, Love One Another. And I was put in a bit of an awkward situation because um, this uh, series, the first sermon, was actually Pastor Graham's last sermon. He stole this message and used it for his last sermon, for the peacekeepers and peacemakers sermon that he shared. And so I was left with a bit of a blank slate, which is actually quite dangerous sometimes. But um, as I was thinking about it and talking uh, to other people about it, getting counsel and praying about it, um, I decided to, to land here and to talk about just simply, simply, <laughs> the love of God, um, which is in some sense easy. It's an it's a easy road for a preacher because there's so much to talk about, but the thing that's hard is how do we wrap all this up into a sermon? How do we do that? And as we're going to discover, it's impossible to comprehend the love of God. So my sermon is a failure before it's begun. But the reason I think that it's important before we start to talk about loving one another, and we do that in the coming weeks, we need to, in order to comprehend what it means to love one another, we need to start to comprehend what God's love is to us, how God loves us. And the problem that we often face is that all that we've got to compare to when it comes to the topic of love is our own external broken experiences. We can only relate and compare to our own broken experiences of love. There is huge limitations to our love. And we know that we know that God loves us more than we could comprehend. We understand it's more than what we could ever muster up. But still, all we can relate to is our own love, and that prevents us greatly. God has called us to a childlike love. And that's probably a theme that we'd probably try and hone in on for the, for the rest of the sermon, a childlike love that God has called us to. I'm going to share uh, two examples with, with you, if you could bear with me. Um, when I found it incredibly frustrating when Judah, my son, is... Um, the greater the discipline, the greater the, th- the, th- the sin that he's committed, whether that be um, kicking his sister for the third time, 
accidentally stepping on her hair when her nappy's been changed or something, you know, walking past her and just sticking this out um, while she's attempting to stand and walk for the first time. The greater the punishment, the greater the sin, the greater the punishment, the greater the discipline. It seems to be the greater the discipline, the sterner the talking to, the longer the time out, the quicker he is to call out for me afterwards. And no instantly is the discipline over and we've hugged and cuddled about it, said I love yous, said our sorries. The quicker he is to say, Dad, can you want to come into my room? Can you do this puzzle with me? It's frustrating because Judah one day is going to be like the rest of us. He's going to be like me. And it's like, no, 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 Judah, the way it's supposed to work is you have to wait till you're a bit more further removed from sin in time in order to feel worthy of the love again. But that's because Judah's love is a childlike, pure love. It's untarnished. Compare that with a child that has been abused and neglected, that has experienced trauma. By the way, I'm not saying I'm the perfect parent and Judah's just never been neglected and never, <laughs> he's, he's perfect in that sense. But I've done camps before with Southern Cross Kids Camp where we get all the kids all the kids come through the foster care system. They all come to this camp. They've all experienced abuse, neglect, and trauma of some respect. And what often happens is they come to camp on the Monday, they get off the bus, and they're teamed up with an adult buddy. Who's, and that buddy's job for the whole week is to love that camper unconditionally. And the experience of most kids when they get off the bus and they meet their buddy is, whoa, whoa, whoa like, this is weird. They don't know how to respond to this love. They don't know how to react to it. And they'll push it away at first. Because a lot of the time when they've been given love, there's been an ulterior motive behind it as well. But what often happens is by Tuesday, things get a bit better. And by Wednesday, the trust has built up to such a point that Wednesday night is usually the peak of the relationship between buddy and camper. I've experienced this with a really tough camper. Wednesday night was the best time. I finally broke through, he finally trusted me, and we had a wonderful time together. But what happens on Thursday, and usually, especially if the camper has been to camp before and they know what happens, they wake up on Thursday and they realise that on Friday camp's over and I have to say goodbye. So what they do, because their minds are broken through trauma and stress, is they detach themselves from this unconditional love. They'll start to act up, they'll start to misbehave, because that'll make it easier when I have to say goodbye. If I make myself unworthy of the love, it'll be easier for me to say goodbye to that love. So they detach themselves, because that's easier than being in touch with your emotions. Now, where, why do I share those stories? Well, because we as a church have experienced so much trauma and so much stress. Jeremy started the service this way. This is meant to be the promised land. It feels like Babylon. This is meant to be a place of refuge. But instead, it's a place of anxiety. And the temptation is, because we love the people around us, we have loved them, and because we doubt whether people love us and we doubt that God loves us in this experience, the easy road is to detach 
We detach ourselves from one another and we detach ourselves from God's love. And you might think that you've never done this, but I've, I realised this last week even, how I have detached myself from people that I love because I don't know how to treat them with love. I don't know how to respond to their love. Because of the stress and the trauma that we've experienced, we, the temptation, the easy road, is to detach. And if you don't, still don't quite believe me, looking at this passage in Ephesians 3, I'm not going to exegete it super profoundly, but verse 21 really challenged me. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Has this church been glorifying God? Has this church been loving one another? Or have we detached from the glory of God? Have we detached from the love of God? Have we detached from loving one another? Because that's easier. Because of the trauma and stress we've experienced. As I read this passage, this passage can be broken up into the, the, um, Paul's position before God in verses 14 and 15. And then 16 to 19 is the actual petition. In verse 14, he he cries out to God and he announces his position, that he bows his knees before the Father. He's desperate. I'm sure that relates to many of us in the room, that we've been bowing our knees before the Father, but um, approaching his throne in petition for our church. And the actual petition comes in verses 16 to 19. This is his heart. This is what he wants for the Ephesian church. And this is how I would sum up these verses. And that Paul is asking for strength for the Ephesians, just so that they would begin to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. He doesn't ask that they would know God's love. He doesn't even ask that they would comprehend God's love. He asks that they would have strength to comprehend it. And only through the power of the Spirit, as verse 16 says, that is within us, only through the power of the Holy Spirit can you and I begin to comprehend God's love. It's very dangerous to think, consciously or subconsciously, that you have a grasp on God's love. It's very dangerous to think, whether you realise it or not, that you have a grasp on God's love. Us boasting about the love of God is like a granddaughter waving around a dollar coin saying, look how rich my grandfather is when her grandfather is a billionaire. That's what it's like for us to say as if we understand God's love and we comprehend it. This is what God's love is like. Now, you might think I'm a bit mean and harsh to say that and to say all that. Why would you knock us for bragging about God's love? And you're right. We are called to a childlike love. So we can only brag about what we know. God has called us to a childlike love. We can only do that. But he's also called us to grow in his love. And we can only brag about what we know. And the thing is, we don't know enough. We don't comprehend enough of God's love. This is why I believe it's dangerous to think we have a grasp on God's love. This is not an exhaustive list. Why it is dangerous to think you have a grasp on God's love 
the first thing is you can misinterpret God's love. You can misinterpret it in the sense of you can just interpret it the way that the world interprets it. How does the world interpret love? What's the world's definition of love? Love. Love is love. That's what they would say. What it really means is love is not uncomfortable. You're making me uncomfortable. Just love me. And we can so easily fall into that trap. Anything that's uncomfortable mustn't be love. We can also confuse God's discipline in our life, in our individual lives, and in the life of the church, as maybe he doesn't love us. And because everything's going wrong, he mustn't be in control. He mustn't be in love with us. On the other coin, we can also misinterpret God's love because it says in Romans 1 that God's greatest wrath is to hand us over to our sin, to give us over to the passions and desires of our flesh. And so just because things are going really well in your life doesn't necessarily mean that God is shining his face upon you. We can misinterpret God's love so often. And I should also say that God's love and his wrath are not separate either. God is loving um, while still being full of wrath, and he's still full of wrath while still being loving. God's love doesn't always feel like love. The second thing is, it's dangerous to think we have a grasp on God's love because it puts us on the same level as God. The reason that Paul says the um, breadth and length and height and depth of him, God is love and God is infinite. He is, his being is outside of our capability of comprehending. We are, infallible. we are fallible. He is infallible. His holiness is outside of our comprehension. His existence is outside of our comprehension. So to think that we have a grasp on his love is to say that we have a grasp on him and who he really is. Lastly, the other reason that I believe it's dangerous to think we have a grasp on love, on God's love, is that there is a catastrophic result for losing sight of God's love. There's a catastrophic result for losing sight of God's love. We can look through all of history and see this. We can see this right at the beginning. Adam and Eve sinned against God because they lost sight of his love. They believed that God didn't have his best intentions in store for them. Every sin, every brokenness that we see in this world, somewhere, someone lost sight of God's love. Every divorce lost sight of God's love somewhere. Every broken family relationship, every broken down conflict amongst others, somewhere, someone lost sight of God's love. And church, before you get offended, I say this to myself first. Somewhere along the line, me and you, all of us as individuals, we lost sight, we lost focus of God's love. Even the Ephesian church lost sight of God's love. The Apostle John, a few years later, Jesus said to him, writing through the Apostle John to the church at Ephesus, 
you have lost your first love. Other translations say you have abandoned your first love. And a lot of people, as I sit down and talk, it's like all that's talked about is what's happening in the life of our church. So many people say, how did we get here? How did we arrive here? How do we get to this point? And there may be some practical reasons, some manly reasons, but ultimately where we find ourselves is the result, the proof that we, all of us as individuals, at some point lost sight of God's love. We lost our focus. Now I know, as I said, this sermon is a failure before it started. We can't comprehend God's love. We will never comprehend it. And we will spend eternity trying to comprehend it, but we'll be doing it with sinless minds and hearts, with sinless people around us. It'll be a lot easier then. So what hope do we have here in this broken world with our broken minds and broken people around us? And this is what I'm drawing to, the application, a real take-home for us, is that we ought to be humbly pursuing to comprehend God's love anew every day. We ought to be humbly pursuing to comprehend God's love anew every day. We need to acknowledge that we don't get it. You may have been a Christian for many, many years, been aware of God's love. But even if you've spent a lifetime under trying to understand God's love, you've only scratched the surface. We don't get God's love. We need to repent of our desensitization to God's love. How often do we sort of do an uh, internal roll of the eyes when a preacher comes, finishes his sermon on the cross of Christ. We know where this is headed. We're so desensitized to the power of God's love. We need to repent that we've lost sight of it. We need to acknowledge that God's love hasn't affected me as it ought to hasn't affected me. And even right now, before the service finishes, before you get distracted, I invite you to repent to God right now in the quietness of your hearts. I don't acknowledge your love as I ought to. It hasn't affected me. I'm desensitized to it. And I need to pursue it anew every day. Paul prays for strength for the Ephesian church, and he, if he was here with us today, he'd be praying for City Reach Oakton, that we would begin to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of his love, that we'd be rooted and grounded in love, immovable. All we're known for is that we are a loving church, that we love one another and we love God. And I'm telling you, Jeremy already alluded to this, that is not our reputation. This happened to me when I returned to college this semester. Everyone at college looked to me, came up to me, put their hand on my shoulder, said, are you okay? I heard what happened. I heard what's going on over there. That's our reputation in the city at the moment. It's not a reputation of being, loved, being rooted and grounded in love for one another and for God. 
And so we, as individuals and as a church, we need to, as Paul, with humility, bow our knees and ask for strength to comprehend anew the love of God. I'm going to attempt to just talk about the love of God, hence why I'm going to rely on godly men who are more profound than me. And sometimes when a large portion of something is read out, it's hard to not be distracted. So maybe if closing your eyes is helpful, I encourage you to do that. But listen to these words. Perhaps as believers today, we know God loves us. We really believe that. But if we were to more closely examine how we actually relate to the Father moment by moment, which reveals our actual theology, whatever we say we believe on paper, many of us tend to believe it is a love infected with disappointment. He loves us, but it's a flustered love. We see him looking down on us with a paternal affection, but slightly raised eyebrows. How are they still falling so short after all I have done to them, done for them, we imagine? That's how we imagine God's love deep down. But this is really what God's love is like. God didn't meet us halfway. He refused to hold back, cautious assessing our worth. That is not his heart. He and his son took the initiative on terms of grace and grace alone in defiance of what we deserved when we, despite our smiles and civility, were running from God as fast as we could, building our own kingdoms and loving our own glory, lapping up the fraudulent pleasures of the world, repulsed by the beauty of God and shutting up our own ears as he called us home. It was then, then, in the hollowed-out horror of that revolting existence that the Prince of Heaven bade his adoring angels farewell. It was then that he put himself into the murderous hands of these very rebels in divine strategy planned from eternity past to rinse muddy sinners clean and hug them into his own heart despite their squirmy attempt to get free and scrub themselves clean on their own. Christ went down into death, voluntary endurance of unutterable anguish. While we applauded, we couldn't have cared less. We were weak, sinners, enemies. It was only after the fact, only once the Holy Spirit came flooding into our hearts, that the realisation swept over us. He walked through my death. And he didn't simply die, he was condemned. He didn't simply leave heaven for me, he endured hell for me. He, not deserving to be condemned, absorbed it in my place. I alone deserved it. That is his heart. And into our empty souls, like a glass of cold water to a thirsty mouth, God poured his Holy Spirit to internalize the actual experience of God's love. Hymn writers write far more profoundly than I ever could. And this is from a hymn that we should, be, that we should sing more from uh, the love of God. The second verse. 
Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every tree on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. That love that I'm talking about. That love that Paul prays that the Ephesian church would just have strength to understand. That proves that this love is not just a warm, fluffy experience. Yes, there is some truth to it when we're suffering and we're we're hurting and God's love washes over us. There is a genuine, warm peace. But God's love is not designed to make us go, oh, that's nice. I feel better now. God's love is meant to break us. It ought to break us. And we ask ourselves, how did we get here? How did this church get here? Well, maybe a real health check would be a question. When was the last time you shed a tear over the love of God? When was the last time you wept about God's love for you? We can only explain, we can only try and relate to our own experiences sometimes. There's limitations to our love. Um, as an example, just to help us relate even further, um, Josh, I wouldn't doubt that I love you more than anything. I love Josh. He's one of my best mates. He's a brother in Christ. I adore him. But Josh, as much as I love you, (laughs) as much as I love you, (laughs) I love him more, Lillian. (laughs) As much as I love Josh, I'm sorry, Josh, but I'm not giving my son for you. I love Josh. I adore Josh, but I'm not letting my son die for Josh. I might die for Josh. I love him that much. But there's a line, I'm not giving him my son. And I love Josh, and I'm pretty sure he loves me. He just said he did. But we did not love God. As Dane Ortland in the book said, we were running from him, blocking our ears for his calls to come home. And Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. I'm sorry for the youth if I I shared this example recently, but it's one of my favourite examples. And again, apologies for using my son. But when I asked Judah how much um, I love him or how much he loves me, it depends on how tired he is. 
um, as to how far he stretches his arms. If he's really tired, he'll say this much. But if he's in a better mood, he'll say this much. And you know, as if throwing his arms behind him is wider than this, but this much. And I, I smile when I see him do it because it reminds me of one of my favorite sayings. Again, I'm sorry to the youth because I share this a lot. But I asked Jesus how much he loved me. And he said this much. And he stretched out his arms and died. When was the last time that broke you? If we keep reading Ephesians, Ephesians, we'll come to Paul putting this love into practice and he compares, he talks about husbands and wives. Husbands love your wife as Christ loves the church. And how has Christ loved the church as a husband has loved his wife? Well, he's pursued us. He's wooed us. He compromised everything. He bade his angels farewell, left the glories of heaven out of the ivory palaces and into a world of woe. He did that out of love. And when we ran away from him, when we said, go away, I want my fraudulent life. I want to live in this facade. I want to live in my sin. I want to live in my self-righteousness. When we pushed him away, when what we would normally do in that situation is we would detach because it's all too hard. Jesus did not detach. He attached himself to us. Again, this sermon, how do I, how do we talk about this topic and bring it together? And I think some things that, some, some areas of application that we as a church and as individuals need. Part of that is already happening, I believe. I sat with Graham the day after the resignations and he asked me, um, what's the greatest danger of this church? And um, I told him what I thought it was, some real practical man-made thinking sort of answers. And Graham is such an agreeable person, but he was very confident to say, no, I'm wrong. He said, the greatest danger of this church is apathy. It's apathy. And he, I don't want to speak for him, but he wrestles over everything that has happened. But he said, my prayer now is that this church will not be an apathetic church anymore. As I said, I feel like that's already beginning to happen. We've been forced to our knees to pray in desperation. There's no room for apathy anymore. It doesn't survive. But we still need to be coming to God, repenting of our apathy of his love to us. And we need to believe that God is in this. He does love us. He loves the church. And he is in this. And verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. The other encouragement application I give you is going back to his love doesn't always feel like love. But this is the truth. We need strength to be able to comprehend his love, that it is sure, that it is pure, that it is steadfast, it endures forever. 
as many Psalms talk about. But we need to believe that in our hearts, that just because everything is not okay, because he loves us, it is okay. All things work together for good to them who love God. Just because things do not feel like it, things may not be well, but because God loves us, it is well. Despite no matter what happens, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, he still shed his blood for us. He still expressed his love to us. Even no matter what happens, our sin is nailed to the cross. What a glorious thought. And that one day, no matter what happens, even though things on earth may not be well, it is well because we're going to be singing with him for eternity. Singing of him for eternity. And lastly, just I want to speak to anyone in the room who I've been talking about how we can't comprehend God's love and you're like, amen, I've never comprehended God's love. How could he love me? And it's amazing, incredible to think how many people are outside God's love. When you actually get down, you actually start to counsel people and the reason why they won't surrender, the reason why they won't become saved and surrender to him is because deep down they don't believe they're worthy of love. They could never be forgiven for what they've done, for who they are. And I just want to say a couple of things. It's not about who you are, but whose you are. It's not about who you are and what you've done. It's about whose you are and who you belong to. And again, our minds can only think about our own experiences. There's limitations to our love. There is no limitation to our love. And John Bunyan says to the one that is scared of God's love, that they have in this image that if they reach out to God's love, they can only reach so far. And their arm is nothing more than a short little tree stump. And that's the extent of their love. And then therefore that must be God's extension of his love. But John Bunyan says that God's love, it's biblical. His arms are very long. And they can reach you no matter where you are. And he can wrap you up into his heart. So if you've been rejecting God's love because you feel as though you are unlovable, I invite you to accept it today. Invite the band up as I pray. Close. Dear Lord, we could never sum up your love in a sermon. We would drain the ocean dry of ink and it still wouldn't express your love. It is incomprehensible the breadth and length and height and depth of it. So beyond our comprehension. God, I just ask as a church that you would lead us to repentance. I've been so apathetic to that love. I've been desensitized to that love. And that because of that, we haven't brought glory to you. We're not known for our love for one another. We're not known for our love for you. Lord, let us not point the finger at anyone else. We want to repent of that as a church. And as individuals, all of us in this room, 
at some point lost focus on your love. So forgive us. Forgive us and center our hearts on your love again. That we'd be a church centered on your love, a church centered on your gospel that would glorify you again and that true healing would begin. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you love us. As childlike heart says and the child's hymn goes, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves even me. Thank you that you love us and thank you that you've proved our love to us. Please change our hearts. Please break us because of this love. In your name I pray. Amen.